Hello and welcome to Brave Hearts Rising, a podcast dedicated to the empaths, deep feelers, dreamers and rebels of the world. For so long we've been told that we must work hard, not make a fuss and put everybody else's needs first. We have learned to ignore our body's rhythms and push through for the sake of productivity and being liked. I'm here to say no more. Let's start listening to our bodies and hearts and give ourselves permission to take up space. Why? Because your ripple effect matters. In these episodes, we explore what it takes to live a wholehearted life, one where you thrive from the inside out. Here at Brave Hearts Rising, we value diversity, compassion, creativity, and kindness because we know that the world is a brighter place to be when you are free to show up as who you really are, not who the world wants you to be. Before we dive in, a little about me. I'm your host, Lisa Pascoe, and I am also a intuitive life coach. I help empaths, highly sensitive women and LGBTQ plus folks in their 30s and 40s to slow down and prioritise their well-being so that they can be more present in their lives and experience more joy. To find out more about the work that I do, please check out www.lisapascoe.com, of course, after you've listened to this episode first. Hello and welcome to the third episode of season four. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to the wonderful Anna Mould. She's a mental health nurse for older adults by day and has just published her first book, Green Pigs and Me, which is a collection of letters to Anna's younger self written during lockdown. She looks back at key events in her lifetime with kindness and gratitude, giving her younger self the hope and guidance she needed 15 years ago. It was a real pleasure to chat with Anna, who has been a client of mine and I am now pleased to call a friend. Together we talk about people-pleasing, creativity, boundaries and Anna's experience of writing her first book. We also talk vulnerability and take a deep dive into the topic of dementia and what we can do to be a more dementia-friendly society. This is such a fabulous conversation and again a really important conversation. So. Without further ado, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, please enjoy. Hello, so exciting. Me so too. Exciting. It's like, especially when you get friends on the podcast and you can just yeah, yeah. chat. And I think especially now with in the midst of a pandemic, it's just nice to see a friendly face and to have a conversation and yeah. one that kind of just goes a bit deeper and isn't like a surface conversation and we can get to the heart of the matter. So welcome. I never thought I'd be one of the women on your podcast. I've listened to these amazing women (laughs) and now I'm here. It's weird. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're here. I think it's really cool. So tell us a bit about your book, because I know it's something you've been working on recently. It's something you're really excited about. And it's really, I think, become a turning point in your lives. So tell us what's the book about and kind of what led you to kind of writing and getting out there now? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting, <laughs> interesting experience. For a while now, I've had this little, little voice in my head um, saying to do some writing. And occasionally I get these, fra- was getting these phrases coming into my head. And I thought, oh, I should write those down, but never did. Um, and then obviously lockdown hit and we had the gift of time. And I was talking to Nicola Humber, of the Unbound Writing Press. And she sort of said, just do it, just do it. So I did. I was a little bit hard on myself because I wanted to get it done before I started my master's in September. So I gave myself a window of like four months <laughs> to write a book. 
but it it just came it was it was quite an odd experience so the book is um a collection of letters to my younger self so they were aimed at myself at sort of the age of about 30 at which point I had two very young children my youngest was still a baby stepmom working full-time running a house doing everything and just doing everything for everybody stuck inverted commas but thought that's just how it was that's you know you just you you're a mum you're a nurse you're a friend you're doing everything for everybody and there was nothing for for me I felt I wasn't doing anything that sparked my passion and I think you know there were certain things that looking back I wish I'd known about how things would develop and that there would be time for me and that these little seeds of things I'd been doing um, would eventually grow into a sort of a multi-creative life that I've, <laughs> I kind of have now. Um, and also what I've discovered is that nursing isn't just a job. It is one of my passions and it's one of my, one of my reasons for, for being here, I think. It's one of my, my purposes. So, yeah, it was, it was quite a, a learning curve um it was it brought up a lot of stuff from the past that I'd forgotten about it gave me an opportunity to reflect on some events in the past and how they may well have or how they have shaped how my life developed and how I respond to certain things how my relationships form and fail (laughs) because quite a few of them have and that's all to do with boundaries and I think now that I'm older and I'm more aware of me and what my needs are, not I'm not just here to please everybody. I'm here to please myself as well. Um, so I think those boundaries are starting to come into play. But it's been a hard road to learn that. I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> yes, 100%. And I think so many people listening will be able to relate to that, whether it's their younger self can relate or they can relate right now because you know people pleasing is just something that is can be can be so ingrained in us from a young age because it's a safety mechanism ultimately isn't it when we please people we're safe when we displease people it puts us in harm it it can potentially put us in harm's way and if you've experienced any kind of trauma or anything in your life I think it's it's just emphasized even more it's even more acute you can feel it so and I think we've we've had this conversation before, haven't we? As women, historically, we've had to please people. Otherwise, we'd be on the street. You know, as women, we've always had to be be pleasing to others because we would our lives would have been at risk. Our you know our whole our whole um, world where we were secure, we could be out <laughs> on the street with nothing if if we didn't please the right people so I think you know on that level as well I think people pleasing is certainly ingrained in women um Mm -hmm. and yeah I don't know you know I can't pinpoint when I started being a people pleaser there wasn't a a significant event but I just yeah as a child you're you know you have to be good and then you know it just grows from there um yeah and I think it's important to highlight that it is normal mm. to have that instinct to please others and 
I say that because I think so often now it's easy just to say, oh, I'm such a people pleaser and then beat yourself up for being a people pleaser and kind of want to change yourself. And I think it's, again, it's just another stick with which to beat yourself. So it's it's holding that compassionate space, all the parts of you, even the parts that you wish were different and having conversations. And I know that's something we've done together, like having conversations with the different parts of yourself and just seeing like, what do you need to feel safe right now? You know, it's really important. And it's, I think particularly for the deep feelers among us, and if you're introverted as well, I don't think it suits to just suddenly always rip off a Band-Aid and go, do you know what? Screw everybody else. These are my boundaries. Although boundaries are very healthy. But, you know, like putting all this pressure on yourself to just suddenly change overnight. I think that that can also impact your mental health because you have support structures in place. And um, typically when we start to push and assert our boundaries, our our relationships change around us. And it's really good to put those boundaries in place, but you need to make sure that you have the resilience to deal with any fallout and that you've got support, I think, as well. You have some kind of support around you as you put those boundaries in place, whether that's from family, from friends, whether it's from a coach or a therapist, someone to help you navigate those transformations and changes. Because, you know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, you need to just stop pleasing other people, put yourself first, put your boundaries in place. It sounds simple, but in reality, it can take a lot of courage. It can take you facing your fears. It takes you facing like past stuff that might come up about what might have happened in the past when you've tried to assert boundaries stories will come up about whether you're worthy of asserting boundaries and so it's really important to have those support mechanisms in place whatever will work for you whether that's therapy or simply having a friend you can call and say ah (laughs) yeah definitely and I think from past experience when my children were younger and I first started dabbling with (laughs) putting my own needs first, the repercussions of that on other relationships was huge. My oldest son and my husband, I mean, my oldest son going through secondary school was difficult. They never picked up that he had ADHD or dyslexia. He was just labeled a bad kid because he wouldn't concentrate in class. And he'd come home and he would act out, you know, because he was frustrated at at being at school. That didn't sit well in the the home environment. And I think I kind of use my need as a way to get away from it because I was the referee. I was piggy in the middle, trying to be the peacekeeper. And again, everyone's got to like me. So my son's got to like me and my husband's got to like me and I've got to make everything nice. And getting out of the house was such an escape but then coming back it was often a lot worse and I think having reflected on those times with my older son since and my husband it's probably the worst thing I could have done because it just took it took the safety net away (laughs) me not being there took the safety net away and it impacted on their relationship my relationship with both of them So it's balancing the needs at the time for everybody. And I think, you know, that's another thing about this, you know, self-care, putting your needs at priority. By considering my needs over everybody else's, I was actually negatively impacting on myself 
because the stress that it created didn't help anybody. And I think, you know, there's a lot, isn't there, at the moment about self-care, self-love and looking after yourself, but that shouldn't be at the cost of others' well-being. I've learned from my, you know, my own experience is that I put myself first. And I think, like you said, it was a rapid change and they weren't ready for it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not a Band-Aid thing. You can't just rip it off and say, right, I'm going to do everything that I want to do, stuff the lot of you. It needed to be done more gently because I, I was inexperienced at doing it I just went for it and you know the consequences weren't great their relationship is great now it just took a lot of time what do you think you would do differently now looking back how would you handle it if you could take you and just transport yourself back in yeah I probably would have tried to make it a bit more balanced so that I didn't spend quite so much time away from home because I was out you know four nights a week some weeks mm-hmm. um which left yeah just left the the boys and my husband in the house and my stepdaughter when she was in so you know teenage hormones <laughs> as well as everything else yeah I think I think it would have been more more gradual maybe one or two nights at the most and then see how it went but I think I just threw myself in and thought mm-hmm. yes I can do this stuff it's fabulous yeah well the point is that being human is messy isn't it and it's not always obvious and we do the best we can in 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 any given situation with what we see as available as the options because you know it's easy as an outsider looking in to go oh yeah but you could do this or you could do that but when you're in the thick of it you don't always see all the different options so you can only do your best and I think for listeners who are struggling with boundaries and I think right now is is extra tricky with people on lockdown people facing restrictions kind of globally if you're stuck in a house with a partner and children I I think no matter how much you might love them (laughs) it can become too much and overwhelming and I think that's that's the thing with boundaries is it's it can be quite messy you know I think I mean very fundamentally I do love what Brené Brown says about it's simply what isn't isn't okay that's great but enforcing that sometimes can feel tough tough and I think the whole point about that you were saying around self-care and putting your your needs first like that's important but as you said you have to look at the whole situation and how that's going to work because ultimately any relationship whether it's a relationship with your children with a partner it's it it, it's, it goes both ways mm. you know and it has to yeah. be looking at the whole picture like you said and again I think that's important so that people don't beat themselves up and you know think that they need to be doing everything perfectly because this situation is so tough Mm. I think parenting is tough obviously I'm not a parent actually very grateful for that fact I don't know how parents do it I Mm. feel as a deep feeler and just having my dog is (laughs) I feel silly saying it but seriously just having my dog feels stressful enough like if he gets poorly like it feels like the whole world is coming to an end so having to negotiate school systems and the education system and hormones and just all the things and sleep I don't know how people do it so what would you say to someone who was struggling 
as you were back then, like as someone who felt stuck, who had small children, probably had your own hormones going on too. <laughs> <laughs> like, what would you say to someone in terms of boundaries and also how it's like self-care? I think it's important just to have small chunks of time for you, even if it's just half an hour to sit with a cup of tea uninterrupted and to negotiate I think one of the things with with me was we didn't my husband and me didn't have that conversation we just were slogging on you know both working full time and we were just getting through it I think that is key is talking and saying you know looking back I probably should have said look I'm, I'm struggling I just need an hour to go for a walk can I leave the kids with you or I just need to have a cup of tea without somebody knocking on the door. Um, and, you know, then to reciprocate when when he needed. I think that is the big thing that I didn't get right was the communication around needs. I think I'd let it all build up. And then when I had that escape route, I just took it. Whereas if if we'd maybe had more conversations about what we were struggling with and the need for some space to read a book or have a cup of tea or just go out for a quick drive. Um, it might not have reached that, that pitch. So yeah, small, small chunks of time, you know, just having that little break, it's like a power nap, isn't it? It re recharges you, um, gives you time to sort through your thoughts and prioritize what, what needs doing. But yeah, making the other people aware that that's what you need as well yeah I think that's an important point having communication is key mm. whether it's with a partner or friends just letting people know where you're at if you're struggling because people I think so often people can do a very good job of looking like they've got everything together and putting that smile on the face and just being like yeah I've got it handled and people don't know and like on the inside they might be like really struggling and being like why why is no one asking me like how I am or why does no one notice because they don't actually realize you know because so we were so often so hard on ourselves we think that we look like a mess or that we're falling apart we don't realize everyone else thinks that we're rocking it or something (laughs) no that is so true I mean the week before I came on leave so yeah last last week um before I had my week off work it got to Friday and I I was at my limit. I'd hit my wall. The Tuesday I was working from home and I'd phoned my brother because I hadn't, he lives on his own in Portsmouth, so I haven't seen him for ages. So I just got a phone and check in. Ended up crying on him. Because <laughs> I think we'd just gone into lockdown. I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm um, and did the same to my mum. Um, but went into work the next day. I'm fine. It's all good. You know, let's crack on. Let's do this. And um, Friday, I was waiting for the result of my first assignment on my master's. So I was like this anyway. Um, and I sent a message to my team. We've got a, a team WhatsApp group. I sent a little message saying, thanks for thanks for being so fabulous over the last week or so. I couldn't have. I've been wobbly and I couldn't have done it without you. And my consultant sent me a private message and said, I'm so sorry, I had no idea. And I said, why would you? 
I've come into work every day. I've done my job. I've been, you know, jazz hands, Anna, as they call me. <laughs> my boss, <laughs> you're just two jazz hands all the time. Um, so why would he have known? I didn't, you know, I haven't, I hadn't said, but then we're all in the same boat. You know, it's, it's difficult. I don't know what he could have done if I had said to him, you know, I'm, I'm really wobbly this week. It would, I'm okay. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how it would have managed any different. So yeah, I think I'm I'm very good, especially at work, going into work, being the professional, doing what needs to be doing. So this week was very and very welcomed because um, I haven't done anything. <laughs> it is a glorious thing to do nothing yeah. sometimes. So you have worked in mental health for quite a long time, haven't you? Twenty three years this year (laughs) and it's something you're really passionate about like what is it about mental health that you're so passionate about what kind of messages would you like to get out into the world I think it's a really good opportunity speaking to you because you're a nurse who's worked in mental health for a long time and you're on the inside I'd love to know your thoughts okay so I work in older person's mental health have done since I qualified so the majority of my work until a few years ago was around um, dementia care. I ran a memory clinic for a few years. So that's to do with the assessment and diagnosis of dementia. Um, but it's also, it was also about supporting the carers who are the unsung heroes because they just crack on with it. They're not paid. They don't get holiday. Um, often when somebody we've noticed when somebody has a diagnosis of dementia people start disappearing the friends because you know dementia is not it's not a physical illness that you know is going to get better it's something that affects behavior it can affect personality and people don't know how to handle that with the best will in the world so a lot of carers become isolated um, so a lot of my work was also about supporting them where I am currently is at the General Hospital in Portsmouth, part of the mental health liaison team. And at the moment, there is a huge spike in in mental health issues because of where where we are as, as a society in lockdown. People are more isolated. They haven't got the normal support structures they might have. People are losing their jobs. People are losing relationships. People are, everything just seems to be heightened. And with our older adults, you know, the carers haven't got the regular support. You know, day centres aren't open. Respite care isn't open. So they are with that person now 24-7 with no break. And it's led to, you know, we've had some tragic cases where people we go because they can't go out on their do their regular thing they can't stick to their routine they're becoming aggressive they're become and you know what it's just you know that's just because they can't leave the house it's nothing to do you know they haven't contracted covid mm-hmm. they're not poorly with covid but it's the byproduct of the pandemic that has caused these changes in in routine and behavior and ultimately the carers can't can't cope but I think your question was something different to what I've done. <laughs> no, that was great. I was asking you about why you're so passionate about mental health. So I've always wanted to help people since since I was little. Um, and whether that's part of the people-pleasing thing, I don't know. But 
I've always wanted to support other people and support them to support themselves as well to try and facilitate how you know how they can best support themselves so a lot of my role I think with carers is to try and signpost and bring in as much support as possible but I think a lot of my role now in the hospital is often to just let people talk because they haven't been able to Um, and certainly you know the the nurses on the wards again absolute hats off to them they are run ragged they are on their knees they haven't got time to sit and listen to somebody just talk about past issues or or what's troubling them or you know their cat that they're missing at home they haven't haven't got the time to do that so as well as you know assessing diagnosing giving out medication which is part of my job sometimes it is just sitting there and holding their hand because they haven't seen anybody for two weeks since they've been here and they just want someone to talk to so I guess it's that sort of that holding space for them to be able to be heard and know that they're not forgotten because a lot of our patients come into hospital and they don't see anybody from the outside world until they leave because obviously visiting is very restricted at the moment and you know little things like you know if if they normally have a paper that I mean the whole team not just me we quite often will go to the shop and buy somebody a newspaper or a magazine or you know I had a chap who had no family he was in an isolation room this was a few years ago and he said he's not wasn't drinking I said you know what is it you like to drink oh I could murder a can of coke so I went to the shop and got him a couple of cans of coke or uh, another lady who likes original Lucasade. So I bought in some bottles of Lucasade, you know, little things that on their own don't seem that much, but it meant that person drank. And the staff on the ward don't have time to sit and go through all that because they've got more, not more important things, but you know what I mean? They've got more pressing things that actually are urgent. Things. Yeah. Yeah. To, to be worrying about. And I just think, I think kindness is such a key a key part of a society and I think you know buying that chap a can of coke made his day it cost me 50 or however much it cost me but it made his day he felt heard he felt cared about and he had something to drink (laughs) so and it's the little things like that there's a there's a quote I can't remember who said it about nurses that they might not remember your name but they will remember how you made them feel Mm-hmm. And that's always stuck with me, I think. You know, they're, they're not going to remember who I am, but if they can remember that nice nurse that sat with them or that, that kind nurse who was on the phone with, with a wife who was really upset, who just listened, who couldn't do anything but just listened, then that's that's all I want to take away, really. Yeah, and the same for my colleagues as well. I want, you know, I quite often sit and listen (laughs) and that is a really important thing isn't it I think that being heard Mm. is so critical and that's that's the importance of holding space and, and actively listening to each other and I think sometimes when we're overwhelmed or we're kind of in our own day to day we can forget to listen properly I know I'm guilty of it in my day to day 
<laughs> Becky gets entirely frustrated with me. Are you listening? Yeah. What did I say? Okay, maybe I wasn't listening. We all do it. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's remembering like just that art of listening to people is so powerful, especially people who don't have many people who are listening to mm. them as well. And I think listening without the expectation of offering any advice. So if you, you know, if you talk to a friend and they say, well, that's a really shit situation, I think you should do X, Y, Z. You go back the following week and talk about a similar situation. Well, why didn't you do what I said? Mm-hmm. And then getting frustrated with you because you're still in that situation and things haven't changed. Things aren't, you know, it might take years for somebody to change their situation but they still need somebody to hold space to be able to express how they're feeling and not feel criticized because they haven't taken that action yet to, to make things different Mm -hmm. because it can't, you know, if you're in a, if you're in a relationship that's maybe abusive or a difficult relationship, it might not, you might not be able to change it overnight. It might be that you need a period of time, maybe not if you're in abuse, an abusive relationship, but, a relationship where communication needs to develop that's not going to happen overnight because the person you're in the relationship with isn't expecting it to change so it's going to be a a gradual process I couldn't expect my husband to come downstairs and me to, right tell me everything that's in your heart darling he's just gonna say what are you talking <laughs> you know he's not he's not going to change the way he communicates with me in a in a split second so I think the holding space for people where they are now yeah give them a chance to to talk through what the issues are and just listen and then they they will they will come to it where when they're ready there's there are people who think well I told you to do this and you haven't done it and I'm fed up with listening mm-hmm. that's not listening and holding space for somebody <laughs> that's something completely different and that's why I love holding circles and space Mm. for people in coaching as well because well specifically with circles it's the it's the listening without advice giving it's so listening without fixing because we all have that urge sometimes well many of us have an urge to just want to fix fix things for people make it all better um but that's often not empowering because if we're doing, we're trying to do something for someone else, fix it for someone else, then they're not kind of coming up with their own, their own solutions and their own yeah. way of navigating a situation. And sometimes you actually don't want to fix a situation. Sometimes you literally just want to get all the messy stuff out of your head and just verbalize it so that you can start to process. Because sometimes just that act of speaking something out loud, yeah, that acts as a way of processing and making sense of something it's almost like bringing the words to life in front of you so that you can go okay that's what's going on Mm. it's really powerful Mm. it's kind of amazing how powerful it is in a way because you have we have all these thoughts they're all in our head but it's only when we write them down or speak them I think that they actually start to make sense and then we can have that awareness okay well what do I need to change in this situation what can I change in this situation what support do I need to reach out and ask for? And then you can move forward. But yeah, being listened to and heard is really powerful. So I guess for the listeners, if there's one thing this week, this month, go and 
give, give your time just someone and listen to them just take some time to listen so mm. I feel like our stories are also inspiring and that's what I love about the Brave Hearts Rising podcast because it's about bringing human stories to life and humanity I feel like at the heart of this podcast it's about humanity and mm. um, that's what's so important because it's messy and it's nuanced and there's not like one size fits all you no, know God, no definitely not <laughs> And so I think just to pick up on the dementia thing, because I think that's actually quite an important topic because, well, there's a few things at play there. There's the the dementia mental health side in itself, which I think is interesting because if someone gets cancer or some kind of physical illness, you get a lot, you, you'll get a much different reaction because it makes sense. Unless it's yeah. like a brain tumour, which again might act, impact your personality if you stay the same but you're just you're becoming poorly it's very different from how society reacts to someone who gets something like dementia which might then result in them becoming aggressive swearing difficult um so the approach is different I feel like sometimes there might be slightly less compassion in society because there's this fear I think there is certainly fear almost like you know that that could be us one day I think that's a big fear and we nurse a lot of ex-health professionals <laughs> and we sort of joke about amongst ourselves saying oh god that's our future but it it could it could be anybody's future I think you know dementia affects a huge I can't remember the statistic but I think it's sort of is it one in four I know when you reach 85 you've got a a very high chance of of having some sort of dementia whether that's alzheimer's or vascular um disease so so yeah and i think also in healthcare a lot of things are put down to dementia and or any any mental health it's you know if something changes in the presentation it'll be well that that's because they got dementia not the fact that they might be in pain or they've got um you know they're constipated or they've developed an infection if their behavior changes it's always down to the mental health it's never down to a physical component mm-hmm. so a lot of our our time is spent saying okay this is a sudden change can we have a look and see what's going on before we just jump on the conclusion that it's it's the mental health that's the issue mm-hmm. And I think that's across across the board with any yeah. mental health, not just not just dementia. Mm-hmm. I've had this a similar conversation in the past when I've said about, you know, carers saying they they feel abandoned. And, you know, some people said, well, you know, I had the same when I was diagnosed with cancer. People disappeared. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, you know, it's not one diagnosis over another. I think any any significant health issue people don't know what to say Mm -hmm. and it's the same with bereavement people don't know because they don't want to say the wrong thing so they don't say anything and I think yeah I think people don't know how to manage this or relate to this person who is now so different to the person they knew and you relate to them as the person you knew they're still that person they still respond to you know positive stimulus in the same way I mean there's so many videos aren't there about you know you see patients or individuals with dementia who still know all the lyrics to their favorite song and will sing along music is such a big a big thing 
it really unites people even somebody with you know the most limited communication skills will still tap their feet to Mm -hmm. to music and what really frustrates me in the hospital is you've got a bay of six elderly you know patients and they've got blooming radio one or something blaring is it could you put something on a little bit more appropriate because not only is this going to agitate people it agitates me Mm -hmm. (laughs) agitates me to be honest yeah (laughs) but you know you've got people that are in in an unfamiliar environment who might be in pain or discomfort don't understand why they're there a lot of the time and you've got this irritant in their head mm. the whole time and you're wondering why people are getting frustrated you know yeah. you put on something calming <laughs> soothing something familiar as well you know they're not gonna know the late I'm not even gonna try and attempt to name a, an up-to-date music act because I'll just make a fool of myself but something from their era that they recognize that feels familiar mm-hmm. um yeah, I, I used to love having sing-alongs with my patients. It's great fun. <laughs> oh, thanks for sharing. Just one last question on this. What do you think as a society we can do to become more dementia-friendly? Because I think it's not something that a lot of us think about, so I think it's a good opportunity to, to think about it now. Mm. I know there was a big drive recently, wasn't there, for dementia-friendly shopping centres and cities and what have you. And I know some supermarkets have aisles, or they used to before COVID, have aisles that were slower paced with a bit more room um, for people with any disability, any, you know, any difficulty. So they didn't feel rushed and pressured. And I think we live in such a fast paced society. I think one of the key things we can do is slow down because, you know, that they take a lot longer to process what's going on, where they are, what, you know, what, what needs to be done. So slowing down is, is a key thing. I think not overstimulating people, clear signage is another thing. You know, you go into a shopping center, you don't know where the hell you are. (laughs) I get lost in shopping centers. So, you know, making things very clear. I think if, if you're, with somebody with dementia I think it's very much bring things down a notch in terms of volume in terms of pace and bring things back to them as well like we said about the music you know what what do they like to talk about if if they're at a stage where they they can't comprehend current affairs talk about what they like to talk about photographs are another great stimulation alongside music things that are familiar it really feel, uh, hits me when people recognise, you know, some some ladies recognise their husband in a photograph, but not the man stood next to them 40 mm. years later. It's really sad. But, you know, you can sit and talk about the man in the photograph and what feelings that evokes and the memories they have, because they still hold those memories really dear. But, yeah, it, I think that is the sad part when people stop recognizing their loved ones I dread that day happening if my parents ever get dementia touch wood they're both fine at the moment but you know we're such a tight-knit family I think it would break my heart if they didn't recognize who I was but I think I'm lucky in that I'm equipped with 
the skills, I hope, to negotiate that and work around that. Whereas a lot of people, it's completely alien to them and they don't know how to manage it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, getting cross with somebody with dementia, arguing with somebody with dementia is going to get you nowhere. Mm-hmm. it's just going to get you both more upset and it's just going to spiral so I imagine you know because there is a grieving process that happens for many when a loved one has dementia and starts to forget things because you know you're already entering that phase of like missing the person somebody was so I imagine getting support for grief yeah or some kind of therapeutic support with yeah. help alleviate that kind of frustration and anger because you know grief brings up feelings of anger and there are some brilliant organizations out there I know Portsmouth Carers Centre have got some great resources and you know surrounding areas are supported by you know organizations like Mind Um, locally we have an organization called One Community and they have access to carer support so there are it's knowing where these support bubbles are but I think also it's important to remember that when somebody is often first diagnosed with dementia early on, you don't suddenly stop doing what you were doing. You know, some people with dementia can still drive because they're assessed as safe. You know, they can still do it. Um, They can still do a lot of the activities. They can still live a normal life. I mean, there's a brilliant lady who writes blogs and has written a book called Wendy Mitchell and she's a great um, ambassador for the Alzheimer's Society who has charted her her journey with dementia and she is incredible you know she still travels around she does talks she's just an amazing amazing lady so you know I think it's I had this conversation with families when I worked in the memory clinic yes you're I've given your dad a diagnosis of dementia, but he's the same man he was an hour ago. The, the switch hasn't been thrown. You, you can still go to the pub with him now. It doesn't mean you can't. That was a few years ago before COVID. So it's important to remember that they still have have worth and have value and can still do things that they, they want to do. They can, you know, they can still work. It's, you know, our younger younger people with dementia. You know, I've, I've nursed people with dementia in their 40s. So I think that's another key thing. It's not just an older person's disease. It can be developed in from age, well, 30, 40. I've seen cases. Just because someone's got a diagnosis of dementia doesn't mean they stop living and yes. stop being a worthy member of society with a purpose. And I think a lot of frustration comes when they are not afforded that opportunity to be active in society mm-hmm. I think that is an issue with older people when it, when impacting older people specifically is we oh. do start to view older people differently and they kind of just fade into the background and we start as a society we start making assumptions about what people want whether it's a coach trip or a, you know and we start lumping everyone in the same category even though like as like 30 or 40 year olds we all have wildly different you know, <laughs> interests suddenly yeah. oh you're over 60 right yeah you must, no. you must enjoy Vera Lynn and you know all the <laughs> we forget that our older adults now are younger than the old do you know what I mean? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, you know, my dad 
would not want to sit in a care home listening to Dame Vera Lynn. No. He would want to be listening to the Beatles and the Stones exactly. and being a lot more active. Than, yeah. My yeah. granddad's 80 and likes to put Land Rovers back together and all Fabulous. sorts. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he definitely wouldn't want to be sat in a care home. So, yeah. yes, it's not making assumptions. And I think that goes for, for everyone as well. Yeah. In society, it's just not making assumptions about each other and just starting to see the humanity mm. behind the human, like just like the, the heart of what's going on for each of us and like listening and just hearing each other is so important. So, let's circle. I feel like I, I made you talk a lot about <laughs> older people. <laughs> let's circle back to writing. Mm hmm. Were you always creative? Did you always see yourself as a creative person? Having written the book, I think, yes. And thinking about the past, yes, I've always been creative. I've always liked art. I love, was always loved music. Um, and what sparked the title of the book was an incident that happened when I was in primary school where we made papier-mâché pig money boxes around balloons and then we had to decorate them and I painted mine green um, and put daisies all over it and was told categorically by the teacher that you've done it wrong pigs aren't green pigs have to be pink um, and obviously in front of everybody in the class and I was like oh, okay I need to, I need to do what everyone else does um, and that was sort of my first the first time I remember thinking, okay, if, if people were going to like me <laughs> and I'm going to do well, I need to do what everyone else is doing. So that kind of quietened down my creative side in school, I think. At home, I like I loved art, I liked drawing and yeah, a bit of writing. And I think I did keep keep a lid on my creative side for quite a while because I thought other people wouldn't like it. So I think when I got to my 30s and did start thinking what what would I like to do you know a friend introduced me to dancing which was I never thought I could be a dancer so I call myself a dancer it's not pretty but it's <laughs> I love to sing I've started painting again recently sewing projects occasionally I've always got something on the go that takes me away from real life yeah, so I think I've always always been a creative. My mum, I think I've followed my mum's footsteps because her house is even more like a branch of hobby craft than mine. <laughs> so we've got, when we go out together, we're always saying, oh, yeah, we could try that, we could try that. We're always, you know, picking up little bits for projects that then don't often get done. But it's nice to have fabric to look at. <laughs> and through all of this kind of experience of, kind of embracing your inner writer, writing the book, kind of putting yourself out there more publicly and visibly. Like what has, ta what has taken the most courage for you? What has, it, what has it been like? Telling somebody that I'd done it. <laughs> Letting people read it other than myself. That was a really big step. I shared it initially with just two people that I really trusted. And, and one, of, one of the friends messaged me back saying god I thought I knew you but now I really know you and I was thinking oh my god um, <laughs> so I think even this is making me I'm probably going to have a massive vulnerability hangover I think after after this this conversation 
yeah, I just think being heard, make, letting myself be seen is a huge, huge push out of my comfort zone. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I, I still feel that. <laughs> <laughs> Less so on the podcast, but more so or if you always do live videos on Instagram or something. Mm-hmm. I think it's natural. Again, it kind of all circles back to that original topic we were talking about, about people pleasing and wanting to feel safe and be liked and just have have that safety I think it's very real in today's age of social media and trolling and all that you know it's so easy for someone to be mean (laughs) oh yes (laughs) natural to want to protect yourself from that ultimately and that's again that's where boundaries come into play that's where support networks come into play and it's so important I guess if there were two things I'd want people to take away from this conversation, one is around creating space to really listen to others and see their humanity, because that's important. But I think in seeing other people's humanity, also see the humanity in yourself. Remember that you are a messy, vulnerable human with hopes and dreams, and you have courage too, but it's finding that the right support for you so that you can you can come up and say, look, this is me, this is who I am in the world. This is my expression of myself. Because ultimately creativity is us expressing ourselves in the world, whether it's through a podcast or through a book or through going to a dance class or even just walking in the woods and collecting leaves and then like assembling them when you get home. Whatever it is, like creative expression is so fundamental to who we are as humans. And I think, you know, growing up similar to you, I never really saw myself as being like artistic, for example, because I couldn't draw a tree the way a tree like, looks in mm. real life. You know, I'm not very good at that because I saw creativity as this very black and white, strictly defined thing. You know, it's something you see in museums. It's something that's kind of revered and kind of put on a pedestal as opposed yeah. to just it being freedom of expression ultimately. Yeah. And so that's, I feel like that's a game changer and, yeah I'd love for listeners to and it can be messy and gritty and you know it doesn't have to be perfect no and you don't even have to like it (laughs) I mean that's the key thing you could draw the shittiest of drawings but sometimes it is literally that process again a bit like with getting like all your thoughts out of your head sometimes Mm. like with specifically with creativity I think it can be a really good vehicle for getting your feelings out of your head out of your body and out into yeah. the world it's like a real way of like channeling that energy out there whether that's through colors or movement or, mm. or singing yeah it's kind of shifting up energy and that that is equally as important for processing if not sometimes more important for processing is that kind of embodiment movement piece mm. so we don't always have to like what we create but creating space for expression is so important because when we don't that's when we end up keeping ourselves small we put ourselves in boxes we people please we we violate our own boundaries and we become unhappy ultimately Mm. we feel stuck we feel like we're never going to fulfill our potential we feel like we're just gonna just live life in mediocrity and not really feel that alive feeling Mm. and I think also it's important to know you know your creativity is very different from mine and that's fine everyone's creative in their own way you don't have to be as the same as that other person on Instagram you don't have to be you know Instagram is the highlight reel isn't it it's it's not the mess um and I think I've had to learn that as well yeah 
Um, have you found like with comparison has that re re reared for you as a, <laughs> as a topic <laughs> uh yeah oh god yeah as a mum as as a nurse as a friend as as every aspect of my life I think I've always compared myself to others and thinking oh I'm not as good as them but now I sort of think I'm I'm good enough I try my best Thank you. And I think I did have one more question before I go on to the my questions I ask everyone is like, how has your perspective on life changed since being in your 40s? Because I know this is something we've talked about privately and I'd love for you to share here. Oh, I'm so much happier. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, when you're when you're young, 40 is like ancient and it? it's really old. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know, my kids always say, how old are you? You're over 40 now. Yeah, it, it's freedom, I think. It's growing into that part part of your life where, especially for me, people aren't so dependent on me. You know, my kids are grown. They don't need me. They need me, but in different ways. So I have got that freedom to actually start thinking about what I want to do, what I need for myself. And those little little seeds are starting to grow those little little sparks mm. are starting to to create a fire and I think it's now not that I don't care but you know people's opinions maybe don't bother me as much now I really don't care what people in the street think when they look at me now whereas a few years ago I'd be devastated if someone stared at me yeah oh god they're, they're laughing at me or you know I think oh whatever <laughs> if, you, if you're thinking about me you're not you're not annoying you're not thinking about somebody else are you you're giving someone else a break <laughs> well, and let's face it most of us are walking down the street worrying about thinking, yeah, like, worrying about what we, what we seem like <laughs> exactly yeah so I just, yeah I think it's certain I certainly feel more confident in myself I feel more confident in my abilities at work, particularly. Mm -hmm. um, although I still have days where I think, what the hell am I doing? A few years ago, I wouldn't have dreamed of doing a master's course mm. for work because I thought I wasn't experienced enough or clever enough. <laughs> and now I think, well, I'm just, just have a go. <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? So, yeah, it's more, it's freer, I think. Yeah, I'm more, more going with the flow a bit more. I still like to plan things, but I it's a bit of a, a bit of a paradox, that isn't it? I like to plan things, but I go with the flow. So I need to have some structure and some knowledge of what's coming, which is ridiculous in this day and age because every week things seem to change, don't <laughs> they? But just some because that gives me a sense of security. But I'm more relaxed about it I think yeah well, I think that is important I think planning does give you some degree of freedom mm. especially when there's you build in give you build in flexibility but we all need to have some kind of I don't know to be secure in the knowledge that things will get done <laughs> yeah <laughs> but with enough space to let you move things around if you need to mm. I think that's really key particularly well for me personally I would say for my mental health it's important to have some kind of plan in place it doesn't have to be rigid but just so that I don't look at my week or my month ahead and go oh my god I've got all these things when am I going to get them to do them because then they just all jumble in my head and that's when I'm more likely to have a panic 
and then kind of a meltdown being like you know so when I'm in that state and I get overwhelmed I know I have to channel practical Pasco you know I'm like practical Pasco let's get let's get into that zone and then I'll be like right let's write a list what has to get done let's prioritize it let's just put it into some kind of structure and then I can breathe knowing yeah when I get my knickers in a twist about what's happening I get post-it notes and I write down everything that I need to do and then I put them in order of what needs to be done and then I can when it's done I can just throw away the post-it note so that's that's kind of how I organize my thoughts I just end up with thousands of post-it notes stuck everywhere but one thing I've also realized is over the last couple of years is that I try to plan my time around my cycle as well yeah so I know that just before my period and when I'm on my period, I don't want to do anything and I just mm-hmm. want to sleep, which isn't practical when I'm at work. Obviously, I don't just sit at my desk with my head on my desk. <laughs> but I know that on those days, work will be enough for me. And when I mm-hmm. get home, I don't want to do anything else Yeah, because I'll be tired. But conversely, sort of the middle of the month, I've usually got a bit more energy and I might book in a few things. So... Whereas before, I think I was just filling my diary and it was a sort of consistent level of fullness. Every week was similarly booked. Whereas now I can look at my diary and think, okay, that week is not going to be good for me. So Uh I won't say I'll do that. Not that we're doing anything at the moment, but you know what I mean? Even Zoom calls can be exhausting, can't they, when you're tired? Yeah, no, it's really important. I think from a self-awareness point of view even Mm. though it's not always practical like you say sometimes you've got work maybe you've got small children but just having the awareness that your capacity won't Mm. be as as usual that week or that day it it means you're kinder to yourself and you're more gentle because you go okay it's okay you know right now this is enough you know you don't have to do extra just (laughs) and I think that's so important yeah and the same with with the year as well I know winter is really hard for me January in particular is rubbish, which is why I booked a week off specifically in January because I knew I'd want to not do anything for a while. And I've learned that the hard way over a few years. So why I agree to start a master's programme in September (laughs) is where the work really ramps up in January. (laughs) It was a bit of a silly silly thing to do, but it's fine because I know that that is going to need to be prioritised over other things you know I need to prioritize my day job my coursework and exam prep and that's where my energy is going to need to be focused if I'm going to get through it yeah that's the planning bit I guess isn't it Mm -hmm. Um, and then you just go with the flow around it thank you okay so the questions I ask everyone and I have changed them slightly this season I I should be prepared for this but I'm not (laughs) What are you most grateful for right now? Oh, my friendship network. I think knowing that support is only a WhatsApp message away or I can just go blah and know that there'll be no judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very great. You know, some of the, the women I haven't even met in person. We've just connected virtually over the last year but they're amazing so yeah that network is worth its weight in gold 
Thank you. And what is one of your favourite ways to practice self-care at the moment? This week it was watching Bridgerton. <laughs> Honestly, that is stressful. It has been stressful. We've watched five episodes and we have to take a break because I just can't take it. I'm just anxious through all of it. Really? Yes. I'm just purely anxious watching Bridgerton. I love Shonda Rhimes, but oh my goodness. Like, I don't know how people can sit and watch it all the way, just like straight through. I did it in two sittings, I have yeah. to say. I um, <laughs> Side note. But I think getting outside and walking in fresh air is the best thing I can do. And this week, that has been the one thing I've said I have, I have to do for myself, mm-hmm. is get out in fresh air. Great. What does activism mean to you? So I think it's... You do it all the time in your, in your job with, like, uh, advocating. Yes. There's so many different ways that, you know, activism... And I want to explore this question because I think oh. there's this idea that activism has to be placards and rah, rah. Yeah. And I think I really want to explore the different everyday ways that we can mm. be activists. I think, yeah, advocating for others who aren't able to speak for themselves is is big. But I think also sharing your values and promoting your values whether they're linked to a hashtag or not I mean a lot of you know a lot of activism online is oh share this hashtag to show your support for such and such and if you don't then you can't be a true believer in this ethos Mm -hmm. and being true to being true to your values it's not just about the hashtags Mm -hmm. Thank you. And when you hear the term Brave Hearts Rising, what comes to mind? I think for me, it's been allowing myself to grow, taking the step to share my passion and with the book to share some bit of dark side of me as well. I mean, there's a couple of bits in there that aren't aren't pleasant, but they are key in how I've grown as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, so being brave enough to let people in and see that yeah allowing yourself the space to grow and sharing that with the world Mm, I I love that thank you and tell us about a book that has changed the way you see the world I know when I read is it the salt path Mm -hmm. Raina Wynn that really inspired me and you know their determination to keep going no matter what together yeah through the just the hardship that they faced during that journey was incredible and they just kept going and they made it together yeah that was an amazing story mm-hmm. yeah I love that book and actually the follow-up is I thought was even better that's next on my list to read so yes. I look forward to that <laughs> <laughs> yeah enjoy finally if you could tell the listeners one thing what would it be Try to find time to listen to yourself and then find a way to act on what you hear. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And then before you go, what are you currently working on and how can listeners find out more about you and your current work? So my first book is due to be published in February and I will be releasing dates on how you can pre-order on my website, which is... Anna Mold author or one word dot co dot uk 
And I'm also on Instagram under the name Green Pigs and Me. And that's the title of my book. Ah, cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on today. It was Thank lovely you. to you. Oh, have a fabulous day. Thank you very much. I will indeed. Doing okay. nothing, hopefully. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anna. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Brave Hearts Rising podcast. To support the podcast and help people like you find us, please consider giving us a five-star rating on your podcast platform of choice. And if you'd like to stay in touch, head on over to www.lisapasco.com forward slash say hello, where you can sign up to receive my nourishing notes. And these include gentle self-care reminders, journaling prompts, inspiration, and more. They're also a great way to stay up to date with all my current offerings and events. So have a fabulous week. Remember to be kind to yourself. Take care. Bye.